Good morning, everybody. It's so great to see y'all today. There are outlines on your tables, and at the end of that outline are questions for your discussion. Uh, Jennifer Superdock, <laughs> and she's my friend. I just, I don't know if I got that right or not. Um, uh, also uh, printed out the verses that will be for your discussion questions. So please help yourself to those, and I'm going to go and pray for, or go ahead and pray for us. Father, how grateful we are for your redeeming love. How grateful we are for your Holy Spirit. Quicken our hearts to what you desire to teach us today, Lord. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our lesson this week is Lesson 5, The Idol of Children. And I want to open up with a poem William Ross Wallace was a 19th century American poet. When he was an infant, his father died. Educated by his mother, he became a successful lawyer and poet with some renown. And he wrote the famous poem, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, um, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which draws attention to the decisive influence that mothers have on the direction of society because they raise and nurture the next generation. Um, rather than taking this as a call for the empowerment of mothers, um, it honors their calling, describes the crucial presence of motherhood, which I know I don't have to convince you of, um, uh, her presence in the life of a child, and points to it as a divine appointment. I'm going to want you to follow along as I read the poem. And this is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle by William Ross. Blessings on the hand of women. Angels guard its strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, hovel, oh, no matter where the place. Would that never storms assailed it, rainbows ever gently curled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Infancy's the tender fountain, power may with beauty flow. Mothers first to guide the streamlets, from them soul souls unresting grow. Grow on for the good or evil, sunshine streamed or evil hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Woman, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh keep, the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry, and the sacred song is mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And in stanza three, the poem points out the, the call to motherhood being a divine mission. And so who is it that actually designed the calling of motherhood? Well, as, as every good um, Presbyterian catechized child answers, God. <laughs> um, and we know, of course, that God designed the calling of motherhood. Uh, the creation a mandate before the fall, men and women were told to be fruitful and multiply. Children are created and placed um, by a loving God in the context of a marital union needing both a father and mother, each bringing something vital to their care. In particular, uh, 
the closeness of a mother is important for a child's security and trust. And a lot of that can actually originate in, in the relationship with its mother, its closeness to its mother. The scripture testifies of Christ himself bearing those motherly aspects of tenderness and watchfulness in these passages. Luke 13.34, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. Psalm 131.2, but I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is quieted within me. Isaiah 46.3-4. Can a woman forget her nursing children or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may be forgotten, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 66, 9. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And maybe it's because the world recognizes that the origin of motherhood is designed by God, that there's a lot of hostility towards it. Blogger uh, Rachel Jankovic writes, Motherhood is not a hobby. It is a calling. You do not collect children because you find them cuter than stamps. And they are cuter than stamps. <laughs> um, it is not something to do if you can squeeze the time in. It is what God gave you time for. Christian mothers carry their children in hostile territory. When you are in public with them, you are standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You are publicly testifying that what you value, um, that you value what God values, and that you, re you refuse to value what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy. You represent everything that our culture hates because you represent laying down your life for another. And laying down your life for another represents the gospel. I thought that was really fabulous. Um, now, why are mothers or families given children? Well, the Bible, of course, we're all familiar with this verse, where the Bible says that children are a gift from God. And a gift is given to someone voluntarily without uh, expect, expectation of payment in return to show favor towards someone and to honor an occasion or make it a gesture of kindness. And your children are all of these from your loving Savior. We tend to call churtle, church, sorry, churches the cradle of the elect. I would emphasize that families are the nursery of the saints. With fam within families, God gives the command to, tr to train children in the Lord. If our chief end as a person is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then we're entrusted to steward and raise the next generation to do that, those who will glorify God and enjoy them together. We are raising children with us who are joint heirs of the kingdom, fellow image bearers, living stones who are being built into a spiritual house to declare the praises and glory of the world. So if you think about it, Children could be God's investment forward to continue his work. Three, since children are not conceived or born by the will of man, truly every birth is a, um, and creation of a child is certainly this display of God's power. And that really struck me this week. Um, we, we, I mean, 
there are obviously biological things involved um, and things we do, but really it's not, it's not us. And what a display to the world it is when um, child after child comes. There's nothing any, well, people attempt to thwart that, um, but um, it's, those are from the Lord. Every birth is a display of God's power to give life and draw that child from the womb. Well, motherhood is a good and precious gift. Again, something I would not have to convince you of. But of course, the fall pollutes everything good, even motherhood. So our chapter this week is how do we make children an idol? Well, we've been talking about idolatry and how that, what that looks like is putting something ahead of God, something's more important for God something than God, something fulfills us rather than God. And so motherhood can become a wrong thing when we prize it above God, or our perspective can. Now, I want to, uh, first of all, uh, talk about those with empty arms and be really sensitive. Um, the grief and challenge of infertility um, I want to just, again, treat with a lot of sensitivity and sympathy for those who yearn for children but struggle to have them. Birthing children is what our bodies are made for. Um, and when pregnancy does not come, the struggle to have a child is raw and real. As month to month, a woman cycles through both opportunity and disappointment. Infertility can be like mourning the loss of a child you never had. There are no memories to aid in the healing process and no permanent closure. Every month is still a chance for life, but when it doesn't come, it's a heavy grief. The woman wrestling with the grief of infertility must learn through suffering to trust God and will cling to the gospel in a way we probably have never had to and we may not really understand. Um, and we get a glimpse into this struggle in the picture of Hannah in, Sam, uh, in 1 Samuel. And, she, and, it, and look, the um, <clears throat> writer, the author of um, Samuel writes, Every year this man, Elkanah, her husband, Hannah's husband, went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to God of the angel armies. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the, as the priests of God there. When Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings from this sacrificial meat around to his wife, Peniah, and her children. But he always gave an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. None of us, and, and it's a real grief that we might not understand, and none of us can relieve this suffer, suffocating grief. But we can move in close and weep and pray and point those who are struggling to the hope of this world's redemption. And I also hope as a church we can give women a place to shed their tears, affirm their value. I think there's a lot of shame. There can be a lot of um, connotations associated because children are a blessing from the Lord that there's something wrong. Um, there's something wrong is sin, not their sin. Um, but 
uh, we, we really need to draw them in close, allow them to shed their tears and affirm their value. So we have those with empty arms, and then we have those with full arms. And I went ahead and um, created this list, uh, two from, my, from the author, and then I found um, another uh, list from someone else. I'll tell you about him in a second. Um, you might be making an idol of your children if <laughs> you're caught up in your child's success and image um, and you see it as your valid as a validation for your success. Uh, and this is where you might be using children to glorify yourselves. What if they're not smart? What if they're not beautiful? What if my reputation is threatened by my child? And a lot of your energy is given to propping those things up because it's all about you and how how they are going to make you look. Number two, some of us have had very harsh childhoods. And again, I want to be sensitive to that. Um, having children as a chance to want to is is a want to redo that. And yes, certainly, if you grow up grew up in a non-Christian home. <laughs> And you're a Christian, it will be, and you want it to be different. You definitely do. But this is something different. We want to live vicariously through our children to make up for what we missed or for the, un, for the wrong done to us. Um, and now I want to add a few more uh, up ways that you might be making an idol of your children from a blogger called The Ministry Dad. <laughs> Um, and he actually is a pastor and president of Word of Life Ministries in Shroon Lake. I found this out this week, where we used to take our West Point cadets for retreat. So I feel kind of a connection to him. Um, you might be making an idol of your children if you compromise your standards for their comfort. You stop having tough conversations. I had a occasionally I will have a parent message me um, about something that happened in class. And this week I had a parent message me that um, I had improperly corrected and moved their students because they weren't, they were talking about something they needed to be talking about rather than paying attention to class. It wasn't quite an accurate assessment of what happened in the classroom, but I thought to myself, it would have been better if they had had the conversation with their child about behavior in the classroom and then had them come and say, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't, but that parent was supporting and saying, no, it's really okay. If you needed to talk about Chick-fil-A or you needed to do this, which really it was like, anyway. So, and I'm not angry or just, um, I had another parent, um, I'm sorry, and I, I'm not, I'm not ragging on these parents. It's just interesting. Parenting's so, so diverse. I have 96 students and like, there's so many varieties of parents, but another one we were, um, doing like an enrichment activity in the classroom and and I put it on the update you know this is what we're doing please prepare your child um and so the parent messaged me and said um you know this is this is not going to work for my student in your classroom and I was like oh I'm so sorry you know what's wrong and she said well you know this type of activity is not good for him because he can't you know he's kind of a rowdy child he can't obey and I was like do you want me to change the activity because your child can't have self-control? Teach this child how to, how to have self-control. Have a conversation. So that's kind of the direction I'm going with. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. And honestly, I, so what I used to think of was if I don't, if I don't, and my children are not perfect, and I didn't do it perfectly, but I worried about that behavior I was seeing at my dinner table later on in a boardroom or in a college dorm room or someplace where people would have to be subject 
to it and the sin that my child would be would be doing to another person so that's enough of that um so have tough conversations you spend excessively on them and you know we all have different means um but maybe you're spending beyond your budget for them you point them towards your desires and not god's and uh, ted tripp in his book shepherding a child's heart talks about um disciplining uh really when you violate the law of God uh, versus um, disciplining for your comfort. And that's what they're getting at there. Um, You constantly worry about them. Um, And as maybe for us mentors, um, you feel an overwhelming sense of abandonment when you think about them leaving and you refuse to relinquish control about the future. And this is an actual true story of General MacArthur's mother. Um, My husband tells me it's really true. Um, General MacArthur, who was, what was he, World War I or II? Okay. Um, Was so determined to be with her son that when he left home for West Point, she booked a permanent stay at the Thayer Hotel, which is across the plain from where the cadet barracks are, so she could watch her son's room day and night. That would be an example of that one. <laughs> um, and so that's that. And I, I really don't always want to know what's going on. It's kind of nice that I don't know, I think, as my kids are in college. Um, so, no, they're doing fine. So, um, you, and then the last one, which is really important, um, you consistently side with them instead of your spouse. This is a big one. Uh, Rick, don't, when your husband's correcting your children, do not, after he's done, like stand there and say, well, you know, daddy, or don't just, even if you feel that way, <laughs> just take a deep breath, pray, and then maybe talk to your husband later. Don't show that disrespect or privately, you know, I didn't agree with, your, with what your father did. So, but you know, let you know how he is or whatever. So don't do that. Okay. So a lesson in idolatry from the life of Absalom and David, though David is called the, the uh, man after God's own heart. Um, his parenting practice of children was actually pretty neglectful. Um, and he really failed to invest in their character. First Kings 1.6 says, and I paraphrase, at no time did David ever displease his children. Think about that. At no time did David ever displease his children. And think about the things that you cycle through each day with your, your family and your kids and the type of things that your kids want to please them. Um, nothing was spared for their happiness and pleasure. And as a king with abundant riches, more than probably any of us have, he could give them literally anything. And so David's son, Absalom, in his pride, organized a revolt to take his father's throne. And I guess since he had never been told no and he'd been indulged, maybe he thought he had the right to take it. Well, the wicked plan backfired in God's protection of David. But God's protection did not spare David from grief. He cries out in 2 Samuel 18, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. On the one hand, we commend David for his perseverance, his long-suffering, and his love for his son. But on the other hand, what is love for a child without taking time to nurture and train? And I'll stop there with that. The author, conclu- the author concludes her chapter by stressing the importance that Christian mothers find their identity in Christ so they can overcome idolatry or, or deal with the temptation. Of course, we're not going to 
um, I guess some, some religions teach that you can achieve some level where you're just never going to sin again. We obviously don't teach that. Those temptations are going to come in over and over again, and we just need to be prepared. Um, let's talk about a biblical approach to mothering. And she talked about your identity being in Christ. And so I thought it would be helpful to think of it in terms of is your anchor in the world, you know, at an anchor, tethers a ship, right? Or are you anchored in your identity in Christ? And she has a whole list, a couple pages of verses of what it means to, for your identity in Christ. In her timeless novel, Stepping Heavenward by Elizabeth Prentice, and if you have not read it, you have to read it. Please get that book. Um, Elizabeth Prentice, um, and it's really kind of a, it's not an autobiography, but she is the character in the book who is um, growing up in the story and then becoming a mother, etc. She compares two mothers. The first, I would argue, is anchored in the world and resents the intrusion into her life brought by the birth of a new child. The second, anchored in Christ, sings her delight with the gift of a new child. The first, anchored in the world, she says, I shall now have one mouth the more to fill and two feet the more to shoe, more disturbed nights, more laborious days, and less leisure or visiting, reading, music, and drawing. There's a second, and this is really precious. It makes me want to cry. The one anchored in Christ. Well, that's one side of the story, but to be sure, but I look at the other, and this is the author. Here is a sweet, fragrant mouth to kiss. Here are two more feet to make music with their pattering about my nursery. Here is a soul to train for God, and the body in which it dwells is worth all it will cost, since it is the abode of a kingly tenant. I may see less of friends, but I have gained one dearer than them all, to whom, while I minister in Christ's name, I make a willing sacrifice of what leisure, of what little leisure for my own recreation my other darlings had left me. Yes, my precious baby, you are welcome to your mother's heart, welcome to her time, her strength, her health, her tenderest cares, to her lifelong prayers. Oh, how rich I am, how truly, wonderfully blessed. And you, anyhow, (laughs) we love our kids. So, and I know we were all there, like we struggle, and sometimes it does feel like an intrusion but that's, the, that's Satan, the world, trying to take what is so good and so precious and turn it into something it's not. It's a gift. Your children are a gift. Well, rooted and planted with our anger firmly fixed in our identity in Christ, we fulfill all of God's, God's purposes and callings in our lives. We have lots of callings, right? Um, and in any given day, we wear lots of hats. Uh, I saw, I, I didn't have this in here, but I saw one time, I think it's so interesting, if you've ever read a magazine and they've kind of calculated what a mom and homemaker does, like what you'd have to pay her. It's like millions of dollars. You know, there's a lot we do. So, but if you have children, then you've been given the calling, calling of motherhood. If you have children, you've been given the calling of motherhood. Um, and for me as a, a parent now, and I recall as my kids were growing, I was took much comfort in knowing that I also had a parent and that is my loving Heavenly Father. And I was always 
I was drawn, particularly after I came to the Reformed faith, um, because I was trying to know who God was in Scripture. Mainly that happened through the Psalms. I'd encourage you, if you really want to know God's character, read through the Psalms. But it, it was so helpful because you you just glean, gleaning his character and how he interacts with me, and I'm a wretched, vile sinner, <laughs> um, is helpful to know how to interact with my children because what he wants us to do is, is to display that character, apply that character to their lives. And so um, I thought it would be helpful just to be reminded of the way that our Father ministers to us, the way that he trains and teaches to us. And Romans eight sixteen says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So what does this fatherly pattern look like? I'm going to read through the things I have down here, and then I'm not going to read the scripture, though. That'll just take a little bit too long. Those are scripture references. I would encourage you um, to take one a day, or if you have time to sit down and just look through all of them and read them and just spend some time meditating on them. He applied, Because they're truly practical in the way we apply discipline to our children or we live with our children. Um, I think when we think about, let me also say this, um, I mean, children become, can become an idol, certainly, but we, we want to avail ourselves of pouring in as much. You know, we don't want to be afraid to love them so much because, well, that's idolatry, or we don't want to be, be afraid to, be so, to give them good gifts because, well, I might be, it might be idolatry. We want to be careful that we're, does that make sense? We're, we're you know, because we are to be giving unconditional love, we are to be sacrificial, we are to, you know, pour into them kindness and, and those sorts of things. So um, let me go ahead and I'll go through our list. So um, God applies fatherly discipline that produces a harvest of righteousness. And, of course, the goal for our discipline is to, um, to bear fruit in our child's life so they know where they've transgressed us, where they've transgressed God, and then they know how to walk in obedience. He deeply loves us. We are loved with an everlasting love. He showers us with undeserving kindness. You know, and there are times when our kids in our home probably don't deserve something, but I don't think it's because of something that's happened or been done. But we don't, we always want to make sure that we're able to show them that unmerited favor and grace that our Father does, not recklessly in a way that says, oh, you know, it really wasn't so bad that you disobeyed, but just in a way that shows that gracious response to our Savior. And we're not lording things over them for a long period of time. Good, uh, he's a good gift giver of gifts that bring life. I love to give gifts to my children. <laughs> um, I, and, and, and I probably need to do a better job of focusing on gifts that, you know, bring life. But give, give gifts to your children. He gives wisdom from his word for any questions we might have. So maybe we should be really equipped with the word to uh, speak to a situation that where we, we see a repetitive pattern in their lives. Something that they need to really be... Um, working on in, a, in terms of a way of sanctification to glorify God. And we don't need to just apply uh, the word with discipline. You know, they get up in the morning. This is a day the Lord has made. We had this, um, because we had a couple of children that would come to the table unhappy, um, you had to, in order to have breakfast, you would have to give your siblings a compliment before you had your breakfast. So, so... <laughs> 
Um, it can take a while to get through breakfast. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so we're not just, it's not just corrective words with, with the, it's not just scripture as being correctional, but scripture as being a means to, dis, to declare God's glory. In our prayer time as a family, we, we all, they always had to praise God for something. The funny thing was some kids would like say, thank you that you're a just and merciful God, you know. And this was like a five-year-old. you know a five year old. It was just kind of what they picked up on. But it was still great. You know, as they got older, they learned how to do it. So anyway, um, he intercedes on our behalf without ceasing. Pray, 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 pray. Pray for your children with knowledge. Ask them how to pray for them um, as they get older and certainly you, as when they're younger you're uh, praying for what you see those needs are. When I'm tempted to come down harshly and respond in anger, I'm restrained with the reminder of God's grace and mercy towards me. He could totally take me out for what I've done, but he didn't. He took his Savior and gave that Savior for me. We are extensions and channels of that grace as vessels and mercy toward our children through our hands, through our heart, through our words. What do your children learn about God in the way you speak to them? What do they learn about God in the way you worship them? What do they learn about, you I mean, we use our hands in the, in, the, in the type of ministry you're giving to them and to others around us as well. He models uh, humility, servant-heartedness, self-sacrifice as a pattern for us to walk. So those are some ways that our Heavenly Father fathers us. Now, um, the pattern of fleeing idolatry and the idea of turning from and turning to is uh, something we see in the Bible a lot. So on the un- onset of our salvation and being granted a new heart and a new life, we're instructed to, to turn from sin and to turn to God. So as we turn from idolatry where our anchor is rooted in the world, in this case the idolizing of our children, and, and we turn um, our identity in Christ as our anchor to where our ship is tethered, what might that look like? And so um, I, I went ahead and I created a, a chart. And I, I hope it's helpful. I was trying to just, and, and our author did this in another chapter. I thought it was really good. I was just trying to kind of, kind of um, create a, a picture or... Uh, something you could kind of look at in terms of what does it look like to uh, be have your anchor in the world and the uh, with the idolatry of children versus your anchor with your identity in Christ. Um, and so let me just read through these with you. And then what I'd love for you to do this week is maybe just take one and commit it to prayer. Even as a parent of adult children, my last, so our youngest is 19, after May, I will not have any more teenagers in my home. I can't believe that. But I'm still, you know, these are still things that come up, uh, crop up. So um, so I'll, I'll go from uh, left to right, anchor in the world to anchor, identi- anchor with your identity in Christ. Living through children versus living with children. Doting on children versus training children. Controlling children versus building a closeness to children. Neglecting children, that would be the woman who wanted the music and the painting and the reading and all those things, to shepherding children. Expectations with selfish demands, where they're going to meet your needs, 
versus loving sacrifice. Anger versus kindness. Tearing down character versus building godly character. Self-pursuit versus pursuing God together. Children are a means for personal gain um, rather than them being stewards, us being stewards of children, which is what uh, we're told to do. Complaining about demands of children versus thanksgiving for the opportunity. And you heard that in um, Elizabeth Prentice quote. Exercising fear, this is, I think this is a big one, versus exercising faith. What does it look like today in the life of my child to exercise fear, okay, and we can all feel what that feels like, fear feels like, versus exercising faith. So um, I'm not going to say any more about that. I want us to conclude together with reading. uh, You should have the scripture in the back, Proverbs 31. We'll just read that together, and then I'll go ahead and pray. Okay? Wait for y'all to get it. Um, Do y'all have Proverbs 31 at the end? No? No, we do. Okay, good. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, let's, we'll go ahead and read that together. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, it's quite an incredible task to be given these young minds and young hearts to parent, Lord. It's so easy to cling to the idols of this world. I pray that you would help us to loosen our grip, to be more and more persuaded each day of how important our role of mother is in the lives of our children. And yet as important as it is, it it, uh, pales in comparison to the importance of your role in their lives. Teach us, help us, equip us, to be the mothers that you desire us to be, to shepherd the hearts and minds of our children, Lord, so that we might truly raise the next generation of those who will proclaim your praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.